CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here we go. Time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Lots of political news, as there is just about every day when we uh, get started on the show to talk about today. So let's get right to the panel and begin our conversation. It's Thursday. That means my partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is the boss himself, Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. How are you, Kevin? Great, Bill. Good. Uh, it's so good to be with you. Thursday has turned into my favorite day of the week, and I can't wait. Today's panel is is, is going to be a great one. So, Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, well, I'm glad, of course, that you're uh, with us. Uh, we're also joined today by uh, State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, who's who the base of her uh, district is in Decatur. And I always say that, Mary Margaret, but you mentioned the last time you were on that I, I failed to talk about the wider boundaries of your district. Why don't you do that for us? I go north to Brookhaven, and I include city of Atlanta and Chambly. Under redistricting, I go a little bit further west, but I represent cities and unincorporated DeKalb and three school districts. Uh, well, thank you, as always, for being with us today. Uh, Tammy Greer is back with us, a political science professor at Clark Atlanta University. And I think I am correct in saying, uh, Tammy, that you are the only panelist who has ever appeared on the show who is not only a political science professor, but is the mother of triplets. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to the show. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> we're glad to have you here. And uh, Eric Tannerblatt is back with us today. Eric, we're really happy to have you back. Eric has been involved in politics and working on the Republican side for many, many years, going back to working with uh, Paul Coverdale, uh, working with uh, uh, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush. He was chief of staff in the first term of Sonny Perdue's uh, governorship. And um, beyond that, worked with Mitt Romney and continues to be very active in politics. And Eric, to prove that you have your finger on the pulse of Republican politics, you are the first one to point out to me that Herschel Walker's dog, Cheerio, has his own Twitter account. I mean, that tells us you're really in touch with what's going on. <laughs> well, and I should also add that you know, I'm a, a proud resident of the uh, city of Atlanta in the community of Buckhead, <laughs> which is where Cheerio lives. Oh, okay. Oh, really? Um, and you're also the incoming, I think still incoming, chair of the Buckhead Coalition, right? So you're going to be looking for months ahead at what may be further steps to try to separate Buckhead from the city of Atlanta, I assume. Uh, we'll be watching that closely. Bad idea. Uh, Buckhead is an important part of the city of Atlanta and needs to stay part of Atlanta. Okay. By the way, Cheerio Walker's Twitter uh, says he is a paw, P-A-W, political strategist, full of life, got lots of pranks. My family is fit, but I'm a little chunky. So <laughs> thank you for pointing that out to us, uh, Eric. All right. Let's get right to the important and serious business on today's show. Um, Kevin, um, we know that 
uh, federal judge, Northern District of Georgia federal judge, Amy Totenberg, has told the plaintiffs in the case uh, that argues that Marjorie Taylor Greene should be denied the right to run for re-election because of her involvement with the January 6th insurrection. Totenberg has said that case can go forward. She denied Greene's attorney's efforts to end the case uh, preemptively at the beginning of this week. Um, there are lots of legal issues, and I want to get into them in some depth, because, Kevin, as things now stand, it's quite possible that uh, she may have to appear in court tomorrow uh, to testify about the accusations that have been lodged against her. Yeah, it's a tremendously complicated uh, case, Billy, that involves uh, uh, constitutional law dating back to the Civil War, but it's clear that the folks who filed, in, uh, the plaintiffs uh, in this case, really want to get Marjorie Taylor Greene under oath and force her to answer some questions. Fortunately, we have a lawyer on the panel today who I hope will completely clear this up for the novices among us who can't quite understand the complexities of this. I, I know that's an unfair request of Representative Oliver, but holy cow, this thing's hard to understand. You know, Mary Margaret, I was going to turn to you on this. Let me just lay out just a little bit of it and then ask you to expand on it. Um, th there are th this uh, lawsuit has been brought by an organization that's challenged several other uh, sitting members of Congress who are running for re-election, including Madison Cawthorn in North Carolina, on the same basis that they were either involved in, supported, aided the insurrection. Um, it is based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which uh, was ratified three years after the Civil War. And what that section did was to say that any member of the Confederacy, um, as a traitor to the country, would be denied the right to hold federal office. Have I got it right so far? That's a very good uh, summary of the part of the history of this interesting conflict. I tried to absorb the 73-page order Judge Totenberg entered this week, and this is my favorite sentence. And then we'll talk about how Georgia law, challenge law, uh, intersects with this constitutional provision. Judge Totenberg said, this case involves a whirlpool of colliding constitutional interest of public import. The novelty of the factual and historical posture of this case, especially when assessed in the context of a preliminary injunction motion reviewed on a fast track, has made resolution of the complex legal issues at stake here particularly demanding. And for 73 pages, she tried to outline how demanding these issues are and went through the, the recent history since Marjorie Taylor Greene qualified of the electors of the 14th Congressional District, voters in that district, having the right under Georgia's challenge law, a Georgia statute, to challenge the right of Marjorie Taylor Greene to qualify to run for office based on this 1868, uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. 
the interesting part to me, because I used to be an administrative law judge myself of the Secretary of State's office, is that this case has been going on for a month now before administrative law judge Bordeaux. They have been incredibly active day-to-day. Marjorie Taylor Greene, among her uh, activities in the administrative hearing of the Georgia's Challenge Law, has objected to uh, this uh, action in many ways. First of all, she uh, says she didn't get the pleadings because the wrong email address was used or put on her qualifying document. That always kind of makes the lawyers look bad when they're saying they didn't get noticed because of typos. And she's saying that her freedom of speech is curtailed constitutionally by this opportunity for voters to claim that she uh, participated in acts of insurrection on January 6th, which would bar her from serving under this 14th Amendment, Section 3. I'm really curious. I'm very curious. uh, And I'll be watching this hearing tomorrow, which will be Zoom, available to all witnesses, all Georgians, uh, whether the Marjorie Taylor Greene's lawyers today will be able to appeal Judge Totenberg's order and be able to uh, prevent her from going under oath tomorrow. In my lawyer hat of looking at this very complex case, and historical case, uh, it's a factual determination about whether or not her acts, which are outlined in the complaint extensively, uh, the, the Georgia statute, challenge statute, uh, constitute insurrection. And a factual case should be determined by the fact finder, the judge. Uh, the legal efforts to stop this proceeding are pretty interesting. Eric, uh, the reason this gets a little bit even more complicated than it already is is that Congress did later uh, pass a provision which uh, said that that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment would only apply retrospectively to members of the Confederacy, okay? That was the reason that in the Madison Cawthorn case in North Carolina, the federal judge there said, we're not going to disqualify him as a candidate because of the action Congress took. But what Judge Totenberg says is that was a wrong ruling. Uh, She claims that if Congress had really wanted to make that only retroactive to Confederate members of the Confederacy, they would have, in fact, had to amend the Constitution to do it. So, Eric, I know this all gets into the legal weeds, but, of course, the significant question here is challenging a sitting member of Congress to have the right to run for re-election. There are some people, no matter how distasteful they may find a lot of Marjorie Taylor Greene's actions, who are going to question whether that's the way to get rid of her. Yeah, well, look, I'm not going to get into the the legal weeds, but, you know, this whole thing is coming up because of how controversial Marjorie Taylor Greene is. I mean, I think, you know, I'll probably get you know, chastised for this, but I just think her clownish behavior is probably what, you know, brought this on. I mean, she, I, I think a lot of what she does is embarrassing and she looks for ways to, you know, court meaningless headlines. And, and, and I think she's, you know, garnered a lot of uh, enemies, but this, this is very political. It's, you know, we're caught up in the legal system. I doubt it's going to have much of an impact because of appeals and we got a primary coming up and, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. But I think this is, 
really a, a whole lot about politics. Uh, Tammy, I'm thinking about you in, in this case, uh, because one of the things that you have always been involved with in your work is uh, encouraging voter participation, really mobilizing people to take part in our democracy. With that in mind, um, and, and I guess... I, I guess I got to be careful here because if she was in fact an insurrectionist, I think you do have legitimate questions as to whether she should be allowed to continue a run for office. At the same time, is there something, as her lawyers contend, anti-democratic uh, about the way this might be viewed by some people? Uh, no, um, to the last question. And I say that because um, when it comes to uh, for example, the argument that she's making about uh, free speech, um, that does not consider that, number one, um, the Supreme Court has limitations to free speech, right? And then number two, that just because you have the option of making speech doesn't mean that there are not consequences. There are consequences um, based on, you know, our actions and our words. Um, and and uh, to the point, though, uh, when it comes to the, the uh, democratic process, this is an opportunity for the voters um, in her district to say this does not represent who we want to be in our district and, you know, to to not allow her to be reelected or to be rehired by the individuals in that district. So I think there is um, a both and going on here um, because I think that it's also important for us to um, be careful as to say, are there any limitations um, or expectations that we have of our elected officials? Is this type of behavior okay? And if it is okay, then would the republic not be in jeopardy at that point? Mm. If anyone can mm. say, you know, this is a challenge or I disagree with an election result, and then um, you know, help to create a conspiracy and, and then actions that overturn an ele- illegal and lawful election. Oh, Kevin Riley. Uh, Bill, I'm going to take a moment here and read from the New York Times. Uh, the uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's lawyer called the effort to remove her from the ballot part of a well-funded nationwide effort to strip voters of their right to vote for candidates of their choice with elections determined by bureaucrats, judges, lawyers, and clever legal arguments. I got to agree with her lawyer. I think Marjorie Taylor Greene should call up President Trump and read that very paragraph to him. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Mary Margaret, uh, t- take us a, a, a step further on this discussion. Uh, the legal issue with my lawyer hat deals with the interpretation of the 1872 Amnesty Act. Did it look backward or did it look forward? And um, the obviously Judge Totenberg said it only looked backward and therefore this action can proceed. With my political hat on, I think the question that is, is broadly stated in my mind is, is she accountable in any way for what she says? And that's following up with Professor Greer. Uh, when people lie, intelligent, uh, lie intentionally, intentionally misstate facts in a dangerous way, and if the facts could be presented, which the uh, challengers intend to present, that her actions were dangerous and insightful of the riot of January 6th, then she should be accountable. Are politicians who lie and say irresponsible, dangerous things ever accountable? That's the political question. 
Yeah, and I I, I agree with uh, with Mary Margaret, but you know I I, w- I will say as the point was made earlier, uh, you know this is a decision that should be up to the voters ultimately, and. And I've got to say, just from talking to people in her congressional district, she's very popular. And, you know, if, you know, barring this, whatever happens with this case, uh, if she's on the ballot, I would it, it wouldn't surprise me if she gets reelected by a fairly significant margin. Yeah, I mean, she it, it does appear right now that Marjorie Taylor Greene is uh, uh, going to have very little trouble winning re-election. Um, so it's interesting that this move would preempt her ability to go to the voters and give them a chance to put her back in office. Mary Margaret, j- just before we move on, um, what is the next step? First of all, help us understand what is the um, the administrative law judge in this case? You said that they've already been in court for weeks about this right now, which is something I was unaware of and I haven't seen reported very broadly. So what have they been in court about? And and is it up to the administrative law judge to make the final determination of whether she'll be on the ballot, assuming that it the Constitution supports this effort to uh, disqualify her? The Georgia Challenge Statute, which is used frequently, most most often in residency challenges, in the, for instance, the case of Vernon Jones, he was challenged he couldn't run because he didn't live in his district. Those are common challenges. The statute directs that an administrative law judge make preliminary factual findings and legal determinations, and then that decision is given to Secretary of State Raffensperger, who makes the final decision. <clears throat> Marjorie Taylor Young, if she loses, will have a right to appeal to the Fulton County, the Superior Court, and then to the Georgia Appellate Courts. And Judge Totenberg goes through the history of the Mac Barber challenge of 2002, where he ultimately first was taken off the ballot and then put back on the ballot to show how the timeliness of that particular uh, conflict that resulted favorably for Public Service Commissioner Barber uh, how timely it was and how it parallels the timely activities of Judge Administrative Law Judge Bordeaux. They've been having hearings on scheduling of depositions, on timing of other hearings, on what is typical in Administrative Law Judge proceedings, preliminary orders about how the matter will proceed. So they have been active every single week since the action was filed, I think, March 22nd. There's been daily activity. I've seen a little bit in the paper about it, but it's been very detailed it's very, very significantly detailed in Judge Totenberg's order that if uh, the ballots have already been printed, and so she goes through in her order if the ballots weren't printed that they could be struck or if they were printed they could be marked through or ultimately, uh, based on the timing, the every single precinct will have a, a sign-up that says Marjorie Taylor Green is not on your ballot, even though she looks like she's on your ballot. So the timing of all of this is very critical and part of the constitutional discussion about is she being barred uh, constitutionally in a proper way. All of that is kind of in the weeds. I apologize for interrupting. So let me make sure I get the most important practical question, which I think Eric uh, referred to. 
this is not going to be, you're not going to be able to resolve all of this, given the possibility of appeals and by May 24th, the primary election. So what happens in, in the event that this is an ongoing case past the primary when Marjorie Taylor Greene is still on the ballot? Does she then get disqualified in the general election? Actually, I think that they could accomplish all these legal steps because they're moving fast now. And they will move fast. And in and in the example of Public Service Commissioner Mac Barber's case, they move just very quickly. But can I ask a question about um, uh, Mary Margaret? The, uh, you said that the administrative law judge's decision goes to the Secretary of State. Does That's the correct. Secretary of State have a time limit when he needs to render an opinion, or can he sit on it? He will not sit on it. Um, in the Barber case, I think the Secretary of State ruled the very next day. The statute does have specific time limits in it, but I don't remember if the Secretary of State was given a specific time limit. It will move very uh, fast. But that's fascinating. So, Tammy, it's interesting that Brad Raffensperger will get the final say on this. What we have to say about Raffensperger, of course, he's running for re-election. Uh, the polls suggest he's way behind uh, one of his Republican opponents, Jody Heiss, who supports the uh, big lie, whereas Raffensperger, of course, is one of the uh, ground zero figures in opposing uh, uh, Trump's efforts to overturn the election. But it'll be Raffensperger in the long run who will make this determination, Tammy. That in and of itself, given his history, is fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. So the question for his campaign is, um, is he running to win the primary or running to win the general election? And what does that look like? Um, what kind of line does he toe? Is, is there a way for him to satisfy both ends of the stick? It would be very, very fascinating to see how he maneuvers through this um, and, and to see if there is consistency with his prior actions and statements about um, the, the election in Georgia. Kevin, uh, before we take a break, we know that Raffensperger showed a great deal of in independence and integrity in rejecting the big lie uh, back at the end of 2020 and into 2021. Um, now the question becomes, has politics changed how he views making decisions like this? Yeah, I think that it has, Bill. Uh, and, you, you know, you mentioned he's running. Uh, and I honestly think that when all the smoke clears, um, It'll people will feel like, hey, it is up to the voters in a, an election. That's always yeah. the best uh, jury. But but we'll see what happens. Oh, well, let's keep this going. Mary Margaret and then Eric. I just want to say one more thing. Um, you gentlemen want to put it up to the voters. It's always up to the voters. Well, we have statutes, we have laws that set forth qualifications to run. You have to be a certain age. You have to reside in something, uh, a district. And the voters couldn't determine that an 18-year-old needs to be in Congress or couldn't determine uh, that somebody lives somewhere that they don't. It, it matters in this particular historical statute about whether or not a person who's taken an oath to uphold the Constitution has thereafter committed acts of sedition, insurrection, or dangerous revolution. That's a fact. That's a statute that exists on our books, and there is a legally valid claim that's been filed, and evidence will begin to be presented tomorrow for a resolution. There are rules that so set up rules of qualification. 
So, Eric, Mary Margaret and Tammy both made pretty compelling arguments for why, in fact, Marjorie Taylor Greene very well should be disqualified. Uh, you don't agree? No, I, I, I look, I let the lawyers and let the judges make those decisions. I guess the last point I was going to make is while all this is going on and we're talking about all of this, Marjorie Taylor Greene is probably raising a ton of money from across the country <laughs> from all of the people that are writing her $25 checks online because she's carrying the flag that they support. Eric Tannenblatt, I think you've made a very important point that Green is no doubt raking in money as a result of all this. It's a truly fascinating case. It'll be fascinating, too, to watch if it goes forward tomorrow. And if she does testify, we'll, of course, keep on top of this and talk about it in the days ahead. Let's get to our first break of the show and be back with more on Political Rewind. Eric Tannenblatt, Kevin Riley, Mary Margaret Oliver, Tammy Greer with me for Political Rewind today. I've got to tell you, if you've been with us since the very top of the show and heard our discussion about Marjorie Taylor Greene, the challenge to her being able to remain on the ballot, you absolutely understand why I feel like the luckiest guy in the world to get to host this show every day. It was a wonderful conversation. If you're just joining us now, really, you should go back and listen to it online or at our podcast uh, it's really interesting. Let's uh, move forward now uh, with uh, uh, another item that um, I just saw this morning, Kevin, for the first time uh, in the, on the AJC website at AJC.com. Um, Raphael Warnock, who a year ago ran on a promise that he was going to change the culture, be part of the change of the culture, change of values in Washington, just put out a brand new commercial in which he is clearly scaling back expectations. Let's listen to the audio of that commercial, Kevin, and then talk about it. I'm Raphael Warnock. I'm a dad, a senator, a pastor, but a magician? I'm not. So in just a year in the Senate, did I think I could fix Washington? Of course not. But every day I focused on what I could do for our state, creating jobs, fixing infrastructure, expanding health care. I approve this message because that's not magic. That's doing the job for Georgia. Kevin Riley, uh, Greg Bluestein wrote uh, the piece about this, and uh, he said that Chuck Todd at NBC called the spot the best of the, quote, letting the base down gently ads in this election cycle. Republicans, like people in the Walker campaign, have said, if this is your messaging strategy, you're already losing. And it does appear in some ways that he's looking over his shoulder at the dismal approval ratings that President Biden has right now. Well, yeah, Bill, let me just mention uh, there was no puppy in the ad, which was disappointing and will be disappointing to many, you know, who follow politics in Georgia. But to me, it's an odd thing. And I'm really interested because we've got a couple people uh, or some people on this on this panel who really understand political campaigns and strategy. But why do the Democrats keep insisting on owning up to the bad things about the economy and keep letting the Republicans own the best things about the economy. I mean, we've got record job growth. We've got a lot of positive things going on. And the Democrats seem to be busy uh, apologizing for gas prices all the time. Why is that, Eric Tannenblatt? Why are they doing that? 
<laughs> hey, you're asking Republican Eric Tandenblatt there, Kevin. Do <laughs> you want me to respond, Bill? Look, when whoever the president is, they, they, they own the, the economic conditions of the country. And there's no running away from it from Joe Biden. And what this just you know says to me, and I've said this before, is that Joe Biden didn't win Georgia. Donald Trump lost Georgia. And the last election was a referendum on the former president. And now you're seeing that, that his policies, since he's been put in office, have not done uh, what I think, you know, some people had hoped uh, as it relates to the economy. Now, he's not to blame for all of it, but it's under his watch. So he owns it. And unfortunately, uh, Raphael Warnock is, uh, a Democratic senator in a democratically controlled Congress with a Democratic president. And I think what he's trying to do is to sort of set the stage uh, for what's to come, because I think there's going to be a lot of blame that's going to be put on, you know, not just Joe Biden, but as we get to this next election on uh, those that are part of uh, his party. Um, look, history shows that when you have a midterm election after a new president, the party in, in the White House does poorly. So you already have that, which is sort of nor the norm. And then just given the rising inflation that we're seeing right now and some of the instability in the world, uh, it's just uh, a recipe for uh, what's not going to be a very uh, good election for Democrats. And I think Raphael Warnock's trying to distance himself as best he can. And I, I don't know that it's going to work. Mary history of the his, history of the midterms is, is is what it is. It's it's as Eric said, it's never favorable to the uh, president's party. <clears throat> I think the ad is interesting to me in a different kind of way. Georgia's economy exceeds even the national strong economy. Uh, Georgia's economy has put reserves and jobs and economic growth in a way that is unprecedented in my long political career. The amount of money that Brian Kemp has in the bank and the way in which pulling in his his advocacy and celebration of daily business growth and economy growth and, and reserves and tax revenues coming in is just is stronger as any as any state there is. I think uh, Senator Warnock's ad really speaks to the the fair-minded, a little bit more independent, maybe more suburban, more more thoughtful voter out there who knows that uh, politicians who say that they can turn cheese into money are lying to them. They're used to politicians lying to them, and they tolerate it with, with, with or without any kind of uh, acceptance. R Raphael Warnock is saying something slightly different and more moderate and more believable and more honest as a person who has walked into a very difficult environment and is doing very well in that environment. That's what the ad communicates to me. Him as an individual going to Washington, working like crazy, and being an average Georgian uh, who is understanding the challenges of our divisive political world. I think the ad has a positive ring to me because it does set a separate tone and perhaps it is a message to the voter out there who's a little bit weary of being told, you know, nonsense and a little bit more ready to listen to some truth telling. Tammy? 
So um, I think it's in, uh, it's always important for us to understand the limitations of the presidency and um, Article One of the Constitution, the legislative branch. We, we uh, generally speaking, give way too much uh, power, authority, and ability and responsibility to Article Two of the Constitution, the executive branch, versus Article One. So that's number one. Um, and and um, if we understand uh, Senator Warnock. What I heard from the ad is I am one of 100 senators. I am one of 535 individuals in Congress um, overall. And as one person in this vastness of individuals who are in Congress, then I, one person, cannot wave a magic wand and to correct all of the ills. Um, we have to, uh, as Mary Margaret uh, just noted, um, the honesty in, in that is refreshing from the standpoint mm -hmm. of voters typically and usually use this, this adage of um, voting uh, or deciding between two evils because, they, uh, because voters assume and they have been programmed to get people who are not telling them the truth. And so whomever lies to them the most or the least, depending on the confidence level, is where the voters go to. So to be realistic and not Pollyannish about it and then come back and viewed as a liar probably is a good stance, being that, as Mary Margaret said, Georgia is not in um, economic recession at this moment, and the both senators from Georgia have been active in touting the successes that have come to Georgia. Bill, I'm going to use a baseball metaphor to analyze the ad. Um, to me, it looks like what Warnock's doing is saying, uh, hey, I'm like a guy the Braves brought up for the last month of the season. I played pretty well in a, in a very shortened period to try to show my stuff. And now if you just put me on the roster for a full season, I'll be an all-star. And I don't think that's a terrible, terrible strategy. I just think that there, that, that the underlying sense of apologizing uh, – uh, seems doesn't, you know, to me, doesn't convey the confidence of, of there are plenty of good things going on. Eric? Yeah, well, it, it's, it sort of also reminds me back in 1992, for those that remember uh, the Senate race with White Fowler and Paul Coverdale, you know, you could say one thing in Georgia, but then you do something else in Washington. And why Raphael Warnock, and I appreciate your comments, uh, you know, Mary Margaret, I think when, if Raphael Warnock's trying to convey a message to voters in the suburbs and to, to people here in Georgia, um, I, the problem, though, is that that doesn't reflect his voting pattern in Washington. And he's voting for certain things that I think are only uh, helping to fuel some of the challenges that the country has right now. So you have to match up what you say and what you do. And, and I, I don't think you can, you know, try and sugarcoat it by saying, you know, I'm just one of 100 and I'm, a I'm not a magician. Um, I think you got to look at the voting record. And I think when you look at the voting record, you're going to see that uh, he hadn't really done what, he need what needs to be done to fix some of the problems. And it's, it's beyond his control. I mean, I'm not saying that he alone can fix all those problems, but he's voted along the you know, party line with the National Democratic Party. Mary Margaret? When you look at the infrastructure money coming to Georgia, when you look at the way in which Washington has, and bipartisan way, has supported that 
that port and those uh, when you look at the broadband money coming back coming into Georgia that's going to really reach parts of our state that are lacking. I think that Warnock has a lot of opportunities to talk about what Washington has done for Georgia during the Biden administration. Uh, inflation is a problem that is not within his control or President Biden's control, and it is part of our economy analysis right now. I think the ad is a truth-telling ad. I think Warnock has impressed me tremendously on his energy, his out there in Georgia, his meeting. I get a lot of communication from my 180 colleagues across the state of both parties. Warnock was in town, and this is what he did right, and this is how he came by and talked about us and and what we care about. Um, I think that the ad reflects a lot of what is good happening in Georgia, and Georgians care more about Georgia than they do about partisan, you know, lockdown in Washington. Okay, before we get to a break, Mary Margaret, since you are the Democrat on the panel today, I do. I, Kevin Riley's observation kind of went um, uh, without more comment. It is true what he says. Republicans have a messaging machine that churns out constant. Uh, strong messages that do resonate at least with their base, if not beyond. Why are Democrats having so much difficulty putting out their message with the same power and strength? That's a very, very important question and can be answered in many different ways. First of all, we simply represent a more diverse, more mainstream, more inclusive, more complex reality of Georgia than the Republican base does. The arguments, the messaging, the in, you know, the lies that the base attract, are attracted to, like the election was stolen, that kind of thing, is simply not available to a diverse, wide widely energetic in a wide variety of ways, Democratic Party. Secondly, our skill level is such that we just can't compete with that very, very narrow, very, very dishonest in many days, in many ways. And to the extent that the Republican message has moved away from things like small government and less taxes and pers- and, and go to more of these kind of uh, you know, not sustainable arguments like the election is stolen and like uh, the mental health bill is uh, legalizing pedophilia, which is kind of my recent examination of the Republican message to the base, um, is just not going to be attractive to mainstream Georgia. Warnock's ad is talking to mainstream Georgia in all the ways that it exists across this state. My view is our economy is doing really well. Unemployment is very low. We have given significant raises to Georgia's uh, teachers and public employees and significant benefits to cities and counties to assist in a wide variety of ways. We have a good message, and we can do a better job of delivering it. Tammy, let me give you a last word before the break. Sure. I completely agree. Conservatives and Republicans are much better with messaging than Democrats are. Um, part of um, the one could argue is that, uh, yes, to Mary Margaret's point about the diversity um, of those that are in one party versus another can create a challenge when it comes to how a message is then received. At the same time, at the same time, uh, to Kevin's point, the confidence 
that uh, or the lack thereof that comes through with the messaging from the Democrats comes off as apologetic of doing their job and taking into consideration the wide range of constituency rather than just a particular base. So if um, Democrats in and of themselves want to have that stronger message, then there needs to be this confidence behind it with the understanding of what reality is. So it's, the, again, the both and. It is just how you create that confidence and your messaging, your strong messaging about your accomplishments. And we are still working on. I think that you can do both. It is just uh, the uh, underlying apologetic nature makes it appear as though you are remorseful for not being able to do more. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show and come back with more on Political Rewind. Kevin Riley, as we all certainly know by now, a federal judge in Florida on Monday a rule that CDC had overstepped its authority in requiring masks to be worn on public transportation, airline, uh, airplanes, uh, buses, trains, and the like. And like a light switch being flipped, masks came off everywhere. We raised the question on the show yesterday as to whether the Biden administration would be willing to appeal that ruling because we know the politics of mask wearing really animate people in sometimes angry ways. And now we know that, yes, CDC has gone to justice and said we need to appeal the ruling if for, for public safety, but also because we cannot allow the uh, CDC's ability to issue this kind of public health uh, uh, requirement to be undermined. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, I'll be interested to see what uh, our panelists think. But to me, the the bad thing that happened here was taking the thing to court at all and and doing that very damage to what the latitude the government and CDC has, as opposed to trying to do everything that CDC can to both improve and and repair its relationship as a very trustworthy authority on something like this. I mean, we really need to be back to the day where when CDC says something, people really believe it and understand that it is in the best interest of all citizens to follow their guidance. And we are so far away from that now that it, it doesn't seem like we will ever get back. Um, Mary Margaret, um, we, 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 we talk about that just a little bit from a political point of view. It feels like the Biden administration, by appealing, uh, is not only risking that a court could further erode CDC's authority, but could put themselves in a political minefield as people are celebrating getting the ability to take their masks off. We live in a political <laughs> minefield, and a pandemic that has killed 40,000 Georgians and what is it, 800,000 Americans, uh, represents a political minefield. The, uh, of course, the CDC is in my district, and my neighbors are some of the people that have been working 23 out of 24 hours um, uh, for two years in a very complex, fast-moving body of science. We are an anti-science uh, constituency if you listen to the base, if you listen to, again, the base. Um, I've been in the Capitol 
obviously for the last two years and watch the the practical realities of people not wearing masks and uh, taking masks off a, lo- a lot longer, a lot longer than just this week when this court order came down. Uh, I may be representing more of the reality of how we've lived than people who are flying on planes because I haven't been on a plane myself in two years. Uh, it is a very difficult uh, fast-growing, intellectually honest debate in public health about what is the best route to save lives. And obviously, the authority of public health has been eroded in part because of this anti-science mentality, in part because of political base pandering, and in part because people are scared and upset and their lives are being tremendously disrupted. They're not being disrupted by mask ordinances. They're being disrupted by a deadly international pandemic, and that's painful. Eric? Yeah, so I I happened to have been flying when uh, the judge's ruling came out, and uh, I saw firsthand people ripping those things off and uh, how excited people were not to have to wear the mask. Now, I do uh, appreciate Mary Margaret's comments about the public health aspects of it. But I do think, you know, because this is political rewind and we talk about the political ramifications, I was, um, when I heard that they were contemplating challenging the decision, I just said this is going to be a political mess because people mm-hmm. enjoy their freedoms. And you're, you just give, you know, people had their freedom taken away when they had to wear the mask. And now they were given their freedom, and now you're talking about potentially taking it away again. And I was uh, watching, uh, I think it was Morning Joe a couple days ago when uh, they were talking about this, and Joe Scarborough asked uh, his wife, Mika, what she thought. And she said, I think it's a bad idea. I think people should still should wear their mask. And he looked at her and said, well, then you should. If that's how you feel. But he didn't feel that way. And I think that's the thing. If people feel strongly about it, then they need to still wield wear their mask, they can. It's optional. Um, so I think just there's, there's a lot of political ramifications to w- what happens. Plus, you know, this was something that, you know, they may do away with the mask mandate. They were talking about doing away with it in a few weeks anyway. And, and right. so now to restore it and then take it away again, I think when you start playing with people's freedom, it's, it's, uh, it has ramifications. Well, I do think the larger issue here is that uh, part of the reason for the appeal is that uh, uh, justice is hoping, hoping CDC will not continue to have its authority eroded beyond just the pandemic right now. I want to move on to one last uh, story before we're finished, and we won't have a lot of time to talk about it, but I, but I, I sent out an, um, um, an, a link to a wonderful essay in the New York Times to all of you on the panel the other day, and it relates to the book banning epidemic that certainly we saw in Georgia, where uh, teacher's authority is being undermined by legislation that gives parents uh, uh, more to say in what books are read in schools than, say, librarians and teachers. It's happening all over the country. Sungju Yoon is a junior in high school in Burbank, California. Out there, it's been a liberal move to ban books like The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn or To Kill a Mockingbird, and they've successfully done it. Uh, here, of course, it's the right that's had much more influence on what books should or shouldn't be read. 
Kevin, the reason I thought what he wrote in this piece is so wonderful, I'm going to read you just a paragraph. Everybody gets a chance to just weigh in a little. June uh, talked about a school board meeting where people were screaming at each other about book banning. Parents were. And he says this, my experience at that meeting and others convinced me that the problem is not that we disagree, but how. We need to shift focus away from the reflexive outrage about restrictions and bans and toward actual discussions of the merits and drawbacks of individual books. He knows that there are black people who are offended by the characterization of Jim in Huckleberry Finn. He says that book was important to him because it showed that friendships, unlikely as they sometimes are, can exist across the things that divide us. I thought it was one of the most mature essays I could possibly ask to read coming from a kid who's probably 16 or 17 years old, Kevin. Yeah, Bill, it really touched me because Huckleberry Finn was probably one of the most important books I ever read in my life. And um, as this kind of debate has gone on and I've become a different person, it's, it's, it sticks with me still. Um, I, look, book banning never works. It's as simple as that. And, and, and it, it's, it, if we could just get to a point to, 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 to talk about things, as, as he points out in his essay, which is very touching, and I really encourage your listeners to, to read it. Um, the only thing book bannings uh, ever accomplish is greater sales of books, and every author who writes a book dreams of a book ban. Tammy? Uh, so as uh, the educator in me, number one, um, you know, fiction invokes empathy. And so to you know, the author's point that you know, their understanding of friendship and friendship can look differently um, uh, is important, right? Uh, number two is that all too often, we want to put today's values on text from, you know, far long ago, right? So this is called social construction of reality. And, and it should not be. We should accept the text in the context and in the moment to which it was and to understand how we've moved forward since then. And, and if we forget those items, then it doesn't work for us. And the last point, real quickly, book banning seems to be a bipartisan issue. Mary Margaret, you were in the middle of all of this. One of the things that he also writes is that he hopes we can put an end to the hyper-partisanship and have vigorous conversations about the content and value of individual books themselves. This young man who wrote this opinion had been reading books and had been thinking about books and thinking about what they meant to him and his relationships in his uh, existence in the world. That's the beauty of reading books. He articulates in the best way possible the value of reading books. Eric, I'm going to give you one last comment before we're finished. Yeah, I, I, I agree with a lot of what is said. And, you know, you can't change history. You can learn from it. And I just wish we were not so polarized in everything that we do in society today. All right. Listen, I got to tell you all, I loved this conversation with all of you today. Mary Margaret Oliver, Eric Tannenblatt, uh, 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 Tammy Greer, Kevin Riley. Thank you for such a smart, thoughtful discussion of such interesting issues. That's it for us for today. Of course, we're back with another show tomorrow. In the meantime, please take care. Stay healthy. If you want to wear a mask, I know I keep wearing a mask, but as Eric Tannenblatt says, some people may think it's time to give them up. That's up to you. I'll see you all tomorrow. <laughs>